Bible. Can you turn with me to um, the second book in the Bible, Exodus? We've been working through um, Genesis and come to being in Exodus for some time as well. Turn with me to chapter 15. And this is a very appropriate pause in the narrative after the triumph of the crossing of the Red Sea. But when Christians get together in church, um, we're very different, we, we come from different backgrounds, but we do some pretty weird things as well, at least by the standards of the culture. And a worship service, if you think about it, is a pretty odd thing. We don't try and be like the world, we don't try and make ourselves attractive to the world, because this is the people of God worshipping Almighty God. That is what we are doing. But it's a pretty odd thing if you think about it, you know, according to the culture. Where else in today's Britain would you find a group of people from such different backgrounds, with such different stories, different ages, different stages, different ethnicities and socio-economic status, gathering together to sing? And singing has to be one of the strangest things that we do, week by week by week by week. So why do Christians sing? Why do we sing? And I want us to look to take this, if you like, interlude in the narrative of Exodus, to look at Exodus 15, because verses 1 to 21 is a hymn. It is a song of praise. And I believe it helps us answer why should we sing? Let us face it, I don't know about you, but there are times when we come to church and the last thing we want to do is sing. The last thing we feel like doing is singing. Maybe you are here today and you're carrying a terrible burden that no one else knows. Maybe you are grieving. Maybe you're filled with doubts and insecurities. Maybe you're struggling with weakness, with injustice, with sickness, anxiety, concern for those that you love. You don't want to sing. Why should you sing? Why should you sing? Well, there are three answers that Exodus 15 gives us as to why we should sing. There probably are many, many more, but I found three. So if you look at Exodus 15, and uh, once you have the scriptures opened, let's bow our heads together as we all pray. Almighty God, everlasting Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our Rock and our Redeemer. And as we hear your holy word, please write its truth upon our hearts and open our ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the Church. For Jesus' sake, Amen. This is the word of God. Exodus 15 verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, 
and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone until your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam said to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. And we thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant words. So why should we sing? And first of all, we sing because God's salvation demands it. God's salvation demands that we sing. And then we secondly, we're going to see that we sing because God's character deserves it. We sing because the character of God deserves it. And finally and thirdly, we sing because God's faithfulness drives it. So that's my three points. God's salvation demands it. God's character deserves it. God's faithfulness drives it. Now, we join the people of God, God's people, on the east shore of the Red Sea after God had delivered them wonderfully and they can't but help sing. And as we looked at last week, God really did bring them through the Red Sea. This wasn't a puddle of water, this was the Red Sea. Um, we looked at it last week, people educated beyond their intelligence have come up with all kinds of ideas not to believe the Bible. They would do anything but believe the Bible. You get people today who say a man can be a woman, but they do not believe the Bible. But God delivered his people by bringing them through the Red Sea. Not a puddle of water, but he brought them through the Red Sea. And what can they do but praise? The only response to God's deliverance is to praise. So we sing 
because God's salvation demands it. We sing this morning because his salvation demands it. His salvation demands it. Remember the situation. God led his people of Israel. He led them to camp between the Migdol and the sea. Between Migdol and the sea. So if you, if you picture it, their backs are to the ocean. Their backs are to the ocean. And suddenly before them is the massed armies, the forces, the chariots, the stealth missiles, all of the modern technology of the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, is bearing down upon them. So they really are between a ro the rock and the hard place. They really are between the army and the deep blue sea. There's nowhere for them to go. There's no way out. No escape. But then God intervenes and God makes a way where there is no way. God intervenes. God comes through for them. God saves them. He parts the sea. He really did. It was a miracle. He parted the sea. The water stood up like walls. You try and do that in your back garden, you won't be able to do it. But the, Lord, the water stood up like walls on either side. And the people of Israel, the people of God, departed on dry ground. God delivered them in his mercy, his grace, and his wonder. And they made it to the far shore. They made it to the far shore. And they turned to see the waters crashing down. Can you imagine it? They turned to see and the waters crashed down in a catalysm of unmitigated judgment on the enemies of God. The waters came down in judgment on his enemies. And the Egyptian army was destroyed. God vindicated his promises. God delivered his people. God destroyed his and their enemies. God saved his people wonderfully. God saved his people wonderfully. And there is only one thing. There's only one response to that salvation. Then Moses and the people of Israel, verse 1, sang this song to the Lord. And in verse 20, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. This is not scriptural warrant for the ladies in the church to bring their tambourines along, by the way. Please do not do that. But Miriam took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them. And Miriam's song in verse 21 repeats the first verse of the Song of Moses, and the congregation of Israel. Probably these are not two separate songs, but Miriam and the women with their tambourines are singing the refrain, if you like. So it probably is an antiphonal song. They're singing the chorus while the congregation sings the verses. It would have been wonderful. I really, really hope they kind of have Apple Music in heaven so that we can hear this play, play on repeat. But notice what they're singing about in verses 1 and 2. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So that's, that's the theme. That is the spark. That is the spark that fuels our praise. I hope that lifts you up. I hope that encourages you this morning. That when we stand and sing, the fuel that ignites our joy and fuels our praise is the salvation of God. 
the salvation of God from destruction and death. Because as Paul said in Ephesians, we weren't a little bit sick, we weren't born good and we went made a few mistakes, we're not messed up because my parents brought me up wrong. No, we're sinners and we're dead in our trespasses and sin. But God has intervened and God has rescued us and our only response is to sing. We sing because of his wonderful salvation. God saves, his people sing. You think, you see, do you see that? When God saves, his people sing. If you were to survey the scriptures as a whole, you see again and again in salvation's history, in all the mighty acts of God, there's always a response of song and praise. Job 38 verse 7 tells us that at creation, at the dawn of time, when all things were made by the word of God, Job 38 verse 7 says, when the morning stars sang together, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So there was a song at creation when God spoke the world into being. When God saved his people Israel from oppression during the era of the judges, again and again they responded in song. When Jabin and Sisera are defeated by Deborah and Barak, in Judges 5, they sang a song of celebration and victory in praise for God who had delivered them. When God rescued King David from the hand of his enemies, and especially from the hand of Saul, Psalm 18 records his praises. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. So when God saves, they sing. When Israel is restored to Jerusalem after, Bab after the Babylonian captivity, they came back as Isaiah had pro promised, Isaiah 51 verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And at the time, of Christ's coming, his incarnation, his first coming, when every strand of God's purpose in salvation history becomes to come together at the very focal point of God's purpose to save a people for himself with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Remember, there was an explosion of song in the early chapters of Luke. There's an explosion of singing. Luke 1, 46, there's Mary's song. Luke 1, 67 is Zechariah's song. And when Mary gave birth to the Saviour of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angels who had sung with joy at creation split the skies with exultation and adoration to God. Glory to God in the highest, and on his earth peace, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When Jesus was born into the, brought into the temple and presented in the temple, Simeon saw him and he burst into song. On the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, when he was with his disciples in the upper room, and he prayed with them and he spoke to them concerning his suffering and reassured them that the Holy Spirit would come. After they'd celebrated the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn. 
Remember that? They sang a hymn and departed. And from that moment, the darkness of the cross descended upon the Saviour. And in Revelation 5, 12 to 13, around the throne of the reigning exalted King Jesus, who has secured deliverance by his cross and the empty tomb, around the throne of the exalted Christ, are countless numbers of angels, rank upon rank, with the triumphant church exalted in his presence singing praises. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. So when God acts in creation, when God acts in salvation, the people of God sing. So Christianity is a singing religion. Philip Ryken said in his commentary on Exodus, the history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. Actually, the drama is a musical. It's impossible to conceive of biblical Christianity without Christians singing songs of praise. So Christianity is a singing religion. A Christian who does not sing is a contradiction in terms, is a contradiction in terms. If salvation was merely a reward, if salvation was a reward for services rendered on our part to God, if he was simply giving us what we would do, quid pro quo, we earned it, so salvation is ours by right, it is our just desert. If that was true, we could strut and preen in here with self-congratulation, but we wouldn't sing. We wouldn't sing praises, we'd be patting each other on the back. Good job. Salvation would be ours by right. We have earned it. We've no one to thank but ourselves. But God has broken in when we could not save ourselves. We can never save ourselves and God has intervened. God has broken in. If Jesus Christ obeyed the law of God that we could never hope to keep, he paid our penalty on the cross. If at Calvary it really is finished and there is nothing for us to do, all that is left for us is mercy. He drank the cup. All that is left for me is mercy and grace as a gift. We can only, but surely, we can only but sing praise and gratitude with joy, with hearts that are melting in wonder that we should be so loved. That's what salvation should produce in us. A joy, a wonder, a thankfulness. Never lose the sense of his mercy. And that should bring us to song. God's salvation demands that we sing. Ephesians 5 verse 18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If you're a child of God here this morning by grace, if you've been saved by amazing grace through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a recipient this morning of such great redemption. How could you ever be silent? How could you ever be silent but sing? It is a real conundrum to me 
to see grumpy people, arms folded and lips closed, who profess to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what God has done. Would you not look at what God has done? He commands you to sing his praises. But how could you not, even if there were no command? We don't just do it. We don't just do it because we've been commanded to, though we are. How can we not? Seeing what has been won for you, how can you sit there with arms folded and lips closed? Sing his praises because God's salvation demands it. Secondly, we sing because his character, that is what he's done. So we sing because of what he has done, but we sing also because of who he is. God's character deserves our praise. We sing because his character deserves it. As you look through chapter 15, Moses sees behind what God has done to who God is. The character, the very character of God himself. If you look at the song, it is a primer on the attributes of God. Moses praises God as a personal God in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. My God, my strength, my song, my salvation, my Father's God. I am his and he is mine. I know him and he knows me. There is intimacy and fellowship there. And yet as beautiful and as profound as that must have been, it is nothing compared with the intimacy and fellowship and communion a child of God standing this side of Calvary may know. If by grace you've trusted in Christ, God has sent his Holy Spirit to live in your heart and you have a communion that transcends anything that Moses could even guess at. You can say in ways that Moses could not, you are my strength. My song, my salvation, my God, I am yours and you are mine. So God is personal. He wants to know you. You can know him and he's therefore worthy of our praise. Secondly, the warrior God, if I go into points, don't make notes because I lose myself and numbers, but and we're in the second point. I think the second point and the second point. But the warrior God who fights for us. Verse 3, God is praised as a warrior God. Now this is maybe a hard concept for us. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 13, Moses said, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. That's verse, that's, uh, verse 13 and 14 in chapter 14. And here as they look back over the surging waters of the sea, beneath which the Egyptian army had been drowned and destroyed, now they see that God kept his word. He fought for them. He triumphed. Now this may be a hard image for us in today's culture, although people fight like cats and dogs all the time, but it, it may be a hard image for us in today's culture. But it's a glorious picture. This is a glorious picture. The love of God we're used to, the warrior God not so much. But thank God that the Bible describes that our God fights for us. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Our God fights for us. The Bible describes as God fighting for his people. 
He fights for us and he did so supremely at the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15. He did so supremely at the cross. And at the cross, it was the greatest contest of all. And it was entered into by the Lord your God. And he won the victory. Christ won the victory. He triumphed over the principalities and powers. He disarmed them and he triumphed over them at the cross. Your whole salvation rests on the truth that your God is a warrior God who fights for you. Martin Luther knew this. If you just look at his hymns. But the, our salvation depends on the fact that our God is a warrior God who fights for us to make you his and to deliver you from his enemies by the cross of Jesus Christ. So give thanks this morning that our God is a warrior God. And thirdly, given we praise him, verse 6, this is because God's character deserves it for his mighty power. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In verse 9, you see Pharaoh's boast. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Now Pharaoh is pretty confident. But for all his boastful confidence, his self-reliance, look at the sheer effortlessness of God's response. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. I love that verse because a puff of God's breath and the enemy are overthrown. Do you ever get worried or anxious as you look at the attacks of the enemy in the world around us? As you look at you know, Satan overreaching himself? Even the current debate, the whole trans thing, you see the enemy overreaching himself all the time. But God is not mocked. God is not mocked. A puff of God's breath and the enemy are overthrown. A puff of God's breath and the enemy is overthrown. So praise God for his mighty power. We should not be fearful of the enemy. We should fear God and give thanks to God for his mighty power. The Apostle Paul prays for us that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And where is the might and the power of God most fully displayed? Ephesians 1 verse 9, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ has won the victory. He won the victory. He won the victory at the cross. The tomb is empty. And he's seated, reigning and ruling. Immeasurably great power. Seen clearly in the parting of the Red Sea. When the stone was rolled away, we see the power of God. The tomb is empty. The power of God. The crucified, dead and buried Jesus stood forth. Risen in glory forever. The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. The victory of Christ. God's mighty power. Praise God for his power, never more seen than at the empty tomb. And then nextly, uh, I don't know what number I'm at, but praising God for his uniqueness. Moses praises God for his uniqueness. 
Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder. And you know that that word holy means set apart, separate, unique, distinct, unlike anything or anyone else, God is generous. He's in the category of one. There's no one like our God. We praise God because only he is God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. And then God is praised in verse 13 for his love. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And that phrase, steadfast love, you've probably heard me tell you before, is that Hebrew word, hesed, it's a beautiful word. Do a study of hesed in the Bible, God's long-suffering, God's steadfast love, God's covenant love. The commitment of the Lord to his people and his promises. It is marriage love, Hesed. It is marriage love. The love of the Lord that takes his people to be his bride, and he says, I do to his church. I still do, even when the church is unfaithful. The covenant faithfulness, the Hesed love of God, even to us wayward, rebellious children of God. We give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. We give thanks. We praise him, we sing, because of his hesed love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His praises, they never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The same love, that love that redeems the people, that reaches its zenith, when the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. The love of God, we praise God for his love. When God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So again and again, do you see that in this, this hymn, this song, God, Moses is tracing the attributes of God, who God is, the character of God behind his mighty works. And the more that Moses sees of God's character, the more that he turns that diamond of his perfection and he sees the beauty of each new facet shining in glory Moses sings praises he cannot help it we cannot help it God's character elicits a response prose will not do when the beauty of our God is clearly seen only poetry will work only song will give voice to the heart responding to the glory the goodness of God who saves by the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you look at the cross? Would you pause and look again at the cross? At the thorns that pierced our Saviour's brow? Would you watch him give his last breath for you? Would you pause and look again? Look again at the empty tomb. When did you last think about the empty tomb? When did you last gaze on the empty tomb? That he has risen for you and he reigns and lives to ever make intercession for you. He has fought and he's triumphed for you. So here he is, our personal God, our warrior God, our mighty God, the only one true God, the God of covenant love, the God of steadfast love, the God who saves by the cross of Christ. Would you allow that to fan the flames of praise and sing because of who God is? 
Yes, for what he's done, but for who he is. You know, when you see a spectacular sunset or you stand by surprise view or you see something spectacular, remember that moment? Or when you first held your child, your first child, your heart bursts. Remember that gasp of wonder, of joy, of delight? Moses is saying, behold your God. Behold the glory and the beauty of your God. Anyone who sees him must sing. And thirdly, and finally, we sing because God's faithfulness drives it. We sing because his salvation demands it. We sing because his character deserves it. And we sing because his faithfulness drives it. If you look at the pattern again of Moses' song, verses 1 to 12, they look back. They look back at the salvation that is won. So they look back at the crossing of the Red Sea. They look back at the judgment on Pharaoh and his army. They look back at what God has done. But in verses 13 to 18, they look forward to what God will do. They look forward to what God will do. Israel hadn't begun to make its journey into the promised land. They think it's going to take a few days. It's going to take 40 years. Now, I know it takes a long time sometimes to get up the M6, but as far as I know, no one has taken 40 years yet to get up the M6. But here they are on the other side of the Red Sea. And we'll find out with 40 years of wandering and journeying ahead of them. But Moses speaks of that journey with extraordinary confidence, with full faith and complete assurance. Believing because of what God has already done. Because of what God has already done provides him with grounds of confidence and assurance that God will complete what he has begun. And as he contemplates the terror, as he contemplates the wonder of the crossing of the Red Sea, striking at the hearts of the at the Philistines in verse 14, and Edom and Moab and Canaan in verse 15. He thinks, he thinks of the day when God will make the enemies of the people of God stand still as a stone till his people pass them by and they come into the promised land and into the sanctuary that has not yet been built where God's presence will be displayed. So the song, if you like, climaxes on a cosmic scale of confidence. Verse 18 that the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So that's the climax of his song. He spends 12 verses looking back at what God has done, and that gives him the confidence and the assurance that God will complete what he has begun, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. So, so do you see the pattern? Salvation... Salvation accomplished in the past is used to fuel our faith in salvation that will complete in the future. That's, that, that, that's why we sing. Moses looks ahead to the end of the journey. I can't believe how many times I've had opportunity to say this recently, but the journey is not about the journey, the journey is about the destination. Sometimes we get just wound up and we get just bogged down by the journey, the journey, the journey. But the journey has a destination. We have an eternal home. We have an everlasting hope. 
Jesus is coming again. Hallelujah. And that is our hope, and that is our eternal security. Moses looks ahead to the end of the journey, and he speaks about it with confidence and faith and assurance because of the salvation that God already has performed. And that's a pattern that we badly need to master. That we badly need to master. Faith in the promises of future glory and future deliverance and future grace is bolstered and, and garrisoned and made strong by faith in what God has already done. The, the finished cross, the empty tomb, and the, Jesus ruling and reigning. So how can you be sure that God will keep his promises? Some of us are locked day after day in what seems mortal combat with besetting sin, festering in your heart. And there are days when it, sin wins more than you seem to win. And you're filled with insecurity. Am I a Christian at all? Many struggle with assurance and wonder if you're the real thing, if your faith is genuine. Have you been deceiving yourself for all these years? Some are wrapped with insecurity and riddled with fear. What's going to happen tomorrow? Why do I wake up every morning dreading what's going to happen today? You see your remaining corruption and your sin, and you wonder, will I ever cross the finish line? Will I cross the finish line? How do you know that he who began a good work in you will finish it in the day of Christ Jesus? How do you know? How can you fight fear and find a well-grounded assurance that enables you to stay in the fight and press on till you cross the finish line? How are you going to fight your fear and silence spiritual uncertainty? You must do what Moses and the Israelites did on the banks of the Red Sea. And that's look back and see what God has done. You must look back and pause and see what God has done. How shall he who gave his own son ought not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See what God has done for your soul, believer in Jesus. Spend time thinking about the cross, the empty tomb, that he gave his son to Calvary's horror to make you his. There is no sin, there is no sin that festers in your heart that is a match for the love of God. There is no crazy social media post that can match God's love. Because that love sent Christ to the cross. Nor are there any trials that you may face today or tomorrow that are greater than God's faithfulness. None, absolutely none, who having begun with the cross will finish the work he has started and bring you to glory before the throne. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the salvation he has secured for you will take you home? He who promised it is faithful and he will do it. This is the, the only thing that I know that is rock solid. Other things may, but this will. And the proof is that the cross of Jesus Christ was planted in the soil of this world, was planted in the soil of this world to save sinners like you. 
and the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. It is that the throne, it is that the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. The tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, and the one who reigns is interceding for you right now. So see what God has done. Fight fear about tomorrow with faith in what God has done. That's how we do it. We fight fear for tomorrow with faith in what God has done. And know that he who has gone to such great lengths to make you his child will never leave you, will never forsake you. John MacArthur said, didn't he, that if we could lose our salvation, we would, but we can't, because he holds us. He holds us. Nothing can break the grip of grace that holds you fast in his palm of his hand forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So fight fear with faith in God's salvation. And when you do, you'll begin to find that instead of words of anxiety and doubt, unbelief and fear, your mouth is filled with songs of praise. Isn't that good? Your mouth is filled with songs of praise. That so God's salvation demands your praises, your songs. God's character deserves our praise and our song. And God's faithfulness drives our praise and our song. So child of God, lift up your voice and lift up your heart to God our Saviour who has loved you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we sang about the good news of Jesus that is a solid rock, a place to stand. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is our rock and our redeemer. Make him the ground of our confidence, the basis of our assurance, and help us to look at the empty tomb, the one who reigns, and with you ignite praise in our hearts in his precious, wonderful name. Amen.